Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. In this difficult day, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. But more importantly, to say a prayer for our own country, which all of us love. You can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and greater polarization. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand compassion and love. Well, welcome to week three of this series. I started this series by telling you that whenever something seems completely overwhelming to me, I think of the phrase, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Uh, I can't do everything, but I can do something. I can't solve the problems of homelessness, but I can help one homeless person. I can't rescue every child who lives in poverty, but I can sponsor one. I can't solve the educational problems in poor communities, but I can tutor one child. I can't support every organization working for justice for the oppressed, but I can give to one. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. I was explaining this principle to my middle daughter who's adopted, and she hugged me and said, Dad, you did it for two, referring to her and her brother. And my instinct was to say, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Uh, But you know what? She was right. And the reality is, when you're doing for one what you wish you could do for everyone, you sometimes forget what you're doing because it brings so much meaning and fulfillment to your life. Because this is the way God designed us to live. So give it a try. Uh, Do for one what you wish you could do, uh, do for everyone and see what God does. Well, we started this series by talking about uh, biblical justice, uh, not retributive justice like uh, paying for wrongs you've committed, but restorative justice, which is to seek out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. It means to advocate for the vulnerable and to work toward changing social structures to prevent injustice. A pastor friend of mine said he was asked if their church is a social justice church. And his response was, that's like asking if this is a book library or a food grocery store. You see, justice for the oppressed is a real important biblical theme that runs throughout scripture. Uh, Sadly, in our day, it's used in political ways to emphasize an agenda that you're either for or against, Uh, but it's a biblical term. It has its roots in scripture. Uh, We also talked about how God judges uh, societies based on how they treat the oppressed, uh, the marginalized people of a society, uh, because they were the most vulnerable to injustice, because they were the victims of injustice. Uh, 
And then last week, we talked about how Jesus died to tear down the dividing wall of hostility that separated the Jews and the Gentiles, the, the great ethnic chasm of his day. And we live in a society that is filled with dividing walls of hostility between black and white, Asian, Latino, rich and poor. And Jesus died to tear them down. So if we as followers of Christ are not involved in tearing down the walls that alienate people, we're making a joke of the cross. It's just not an option. All right, today we're going to look at a story from Luke 10, starting at verse 25. Uh, It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, This story is known to Christians and non-Christians alike. And what many people don't know is how the cultural, uh, social, and religious realities of Jesus' day color this story. And so we're going to explore that. Uh, We're going to explore what this story meant to Jesus' listeners and hopefully give, uh, give us a new appreciation for it in light of what we're experiencing today. Something we need to understand about the story of the Good Samaritan is it's designed around two debates that happened between Jesus and an expert in the law. The first debate is contained in Luke 10, 25 to 28. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. A teacher, he asked him, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Okay, so this is the first debate. And we need to notice a few things that are going on here. Uh, First of all, it seems like the expert in the law is coming to ask Jesus a question, uh, but that's not really what's happening. In verse 25, Luke tells us an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, uh, which is interesting because in that culture, if a person had a sincere question, uh, if they wanted to learn from a rabbi, they would stand as a sign of respect. And so in standing, this lawyer is essentially saying to Jesus, I have an honest question for which I would like an answer. Uh, But that's not what's happening. He's there to test Jesus. And so in this debate, there are two questions and two answers. Uh, But you notice it's not structured question, answer, question, answer. uh, Because Jesus knew what was going on in this guy's heart. Uh, Jesus knew he was being tested. And so when the expert in the law asks this first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Rather than giving an answer, Jesus returns with a question. Uh, Now, one of the reasons Jesus taught in stories was to overcome the uh, prevailing assumptions of that day. And one of the prevailing assumptions was you could do something in order to inherit eternal life. Jesus recognizes this. He recognizes this is the heart of the question, and so he returns it with a question himself. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And then there's a series of two answers. Uh, The first answer comes from the expert in the law. Uh, Jesus actually has him answer his own question. And he answers correctly uh, with the verse from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.27. He answered, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Now, having given this answer, Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. 
Do this and you will live. Uh, now that ought to be the end of the story. You have answered correctly. Uh, you have the right answer. Your theology is correct. But there's a lingering question. Uh, does he have the life to back it up? Is, he, uh, is his intellectual stance in line with the way he lives his life? Does he really love people or is he just uh, theologically correct? For some reason, this answer doesn't satisfy the expert in the law. Uh, perhaps as he was saying the words out loud, I need to love God and I need to love my neighbor, he realized that he's not quite done that yet. Uh, that the answer was, it's not sufficient for him. That Jesus is really saying, if you want to do something in order to inherit eternal life, then all you need to do is continually love God and continually love your neighbor with all that you are, with the totality of your entire being. And it's at this point that the expert in the law gets a little nervous because I think what, what he was hoping was that Jesus would give him a list so that he could kind of just check off all the ways that he was living his life and kind of walk away feeling like he was righteous. But instead of giving him a list, Jesus lays out requirements that are unconditional. Jesus lays out a command to an open-ended lifestyle that requires an unconditional love for both God and people. So starting with verse 29, we enter the second debate. Again, with two questions and two answers. Uh, verse 29 says, but he wanted to justify himself. The other reason Jesus taught in stories was to correct attitudes. Uh, here we see the attitude of a self-righteous man. He asked the question, probably with a hint of arrogance, and who is my neighbor? Uh, because this part of the conversation made him a little uncomfortable. It's like he's asking Jesus, who do I need to love? And Jesus says, well, you need to love people. And he says, well, okay, that's great. Define people. He's looking for a loophole. You see, he knew that he was supposed to love God, but who was the neighbor that he was supposed to love as himself? I mean, if he could just get that straight, then he could leave feeling justified. Now, let me explain a little about the Jewish social structure uh, as it existed in Jesus's day so that we can understand the next part of the story. Uh, the person in the Jewish social structure who had the most power was the priest. Uh, from there would be the Levite, uh, and then the Jew who was a descendant directly from the line of Joseph. Uh, from there, there were the untouchables, the, the tax collectors, the outcasts, the, the sinners, the Gentiles, and the Samaritans. Uh, the question the lawyer is asking right now is, how far down in the social structure do I have to go to consider someone my neighbor? And here's what he's hoping. He's hoping Jesus is going to say, well, you have to love the priests, you have to love the Levites, um, and you have to love the Jew from the line of Joseph. If Jesus said that, he would be able to say, well, I've obeyed the command. You see, the problem with this expert in the law is he's still living in the, the do part of the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't realize that in order to inherit eternal life, one needs to live in God's grace. He doesn't want to live in grace because that takes away all of his credit. He would prefer to live by his own ability to present, present himself as significant, 
and righteous before God. He's asking the question that we might ask today. Uh, do I have to love people who disagree with me politically? Uh, do I have to love my enemy? Do I have to love the person who says evil things about me? Do I have to love the person who hurt me? Can I just love people who are nice to me that I get along with? Jesus is about to blow this guy's mind. And here's what Jesus is going to show him. In this particular story, Jesus is going to push the envelope all the way out to the Samaritans. Uh, now, there are many stories and many instances in Jesus' teachings where he pushes the, the limit uh, all the way out to the Gentiles and then beyond that even to women, which was a radical move in the ancient world. But in this particular story, Jesus is going to push it as far out as the Samaritans. And he knows that the lawyer is not going to be able to comprehend this. And so he takes him slowly and he says, well, let me tell you a story. And it starts in verse 30. In reply uh, to the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. All right, so let's take a look real quick at the beginning of this story. A man was going from, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, now, first of all, the road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho is a steep, twisty, windy road that earned the nickname the Way of Blood. Uh, it's a 17-mile road. It descends uh, 3,300 feet. It twists, it's steep, and it's surrounded by rocky cliffs. It was a perfect road for robbers to hide out and attack travelers. And so the situation is a traveler gets robbed and is lying on the side of the road and they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and they left him for dead. That's the situation. And the first two characters in the story arrive on the scene. The first one is the priest. Uh, coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, we assume that he had just finished his priestly duties. Uh, he's been serving in the temple. Uh, Jericho was a popular countryside resort for people of the upper class, uh, which the priest was a part of. And so it's possible that having finished his temple duties, this priest was on his way for a little rest and relaxation down in Jericho. Uh, Jesus says he saw the man and passed by on the other side. Now, when it says he walked on the other side of the road, it's not like a road, uh, which, it's not like the, the roads that we see today. It's not as wide as one of the roads in our day. This was a tiny, narrow, uh, three foot wide road. And so you get the picture that the priest walks by, sees him, and kind of slides by him, you know, so that he doesn't touch him. And then the second character comes, and he's a Levite. The Levite people are still inferior in social status to the priest, but they still have temple duties. Uh, they still are a privileged group. And we see the same thing with the Levite. The Levite walks by, sees the man, and he kind of slides by without touching him. Now, there are two types of sin Jesus is revealing in the story. Uh, there was the sin of the robbers who stole from the man and beat him. 
But what seems like the greater sin, because the story concentrates here on these two characters longer than on the robbers, is the sin of neglecting the man in need. The priest and the Levite fail to help the man, and that becomes an actual worse evil than the sin of putting him in the condition in the first place. Uh, the lack of compassion from the priest and the Levite is actually a worse evil than the act of robbing the man. Uh, now, the people who are listening to this story, along with the expert in the law, are probably following Jesus uh, up until now. Uh, while Jesus is teaching the story, uh, they're probably not too surprised that neither one of these people stop. Uh, and here's why. They're imagining themselves in the story, and they're checking off in their mind all the reasons why they wouldn't stop. Uh, first of all, a priest or a Levite, actually any Jew, according to ritual laws, would have been defiled by a dead body if they touched it. And for a priest to be restored into clean status so they can re-enter the worship duties in the temple, it would cost a lot of time. Uh, the ritual cleansing that it would take for a priest to be reinstated to the duties, uh, to his duties, would take a full week. Uh, it would take money. Uh, he would have to find and purchase and sacrifice a clean animal, uh, which would also be somewhat humiliating uh, because that meant that he broke one of the ritual laws. Uh, this priest, in order to be reinstated to serve in the temple, would have to stand with uh, sinners for purification rituals. Uh, he would have to become one of the uh, regular people. And so with all these laws going on and the thought that he might be defiled by a corpse, he just didn't stop. Also, the Jewish people had a long list of who they could and couldn't help. And almost everyone who was a non-Jew was on the list of who they couldn't help. This person might have been a non-Jew. I mean, there was no way to distinguish him. Uh, he had no clothes on, he couldn't speak, so an accent uh, didn't give him away. So if the priest or the Levite touched a dead body, and then it was a non-Jew, I mean, the ritual implications were unbelievable. Uh, he would have been defiled to the worst degree. So he just moved on. Time is another consideration. Uh, it would have taken time to help this man, uh, even if he were a Jew who was alive. And who knows, the priest may have been on vacation, or maybe he was busy and he couldn't take the time out of his busy schedule. Uh, this wasn't on his schedule, and so he couldn't stop. But then money was an issue. Uh, it would cost him one way or another. Uh, he would have to use some of his own money uh, to help this man. You know, an interesting thing about this is the priest and the Levite became prisoners of their own religious system. The rules and the rituals didn't affect the way they lived or treated people. Instead, they chained their hands so tightly that there was no room to reach out with compassion. Do you know what would have been on the, uh, the list of reasons to stop? Compassion, nothing else. There's no other reason. And compassion was the only thing that the priest and the Levite didn't have. Maybe they had it at one time, but the temple duties, the regulations, the rituals killed any compassion they would have started with. Okay, so we have these listeners who are hearing this story, and they know there are three classes of people who serve in the temple. 
there's the priest, there's the Levite, and then there's the Jew from the line of Joseph, who would have been just a regular Jewish person, a, a Jewish lay person. The first person that walks by makes sense is the priest. The second person uh, was the Levite, and they're anticipating who the third person is going to be. It's going to be the regular Jewish person uh, who is going to be the hero of the story. Uh, so they're anticipating what's going to happen next. But Jesus interrupts the sequence. And we need to understand the shock value of what's about to happen in this next verse. Jesus takes the person that if he shows up at all in the story, he's going to be the villain. And Jesus turns him into the hero. There were uh, two centuries of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, the Samaritans were called the people of Shechem. Uh, listen to what one writer, uh, one Jewish writer wrote 200 years before Jesus, before Christ. There are two nations that my soul detests. The third one is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir and the Philistines and the stupid people living at Shechem. That's how they referred to the Samaritans. Stupid people. Josephus, in his History of the Jewish People, writes that daily petitions were offered in the temple, praying to God that Samaritans might not be partakers of eternal life. This animosity goes back hundreds of years before Christ. You know, if Jesus were in Jerusalem today, he might be telling this story to a Jewish person about the good Palestinian. Uh, if he was talking to Palestinians, he might sit them down and say, well, let me, let me tell you a story about the good Israeli. But here's the shock value. The people were expecting one thing, and the most unthinkable person came in next. And not as the villain, but as the hero. And it would be kind of like saying the first character who walked by was a medical doctor uh, who could have easily helped, but he just kept walking. And the next one who walked by was a paramedic, you know, fully trained to help on the spot, but he just kept walking. And then you expect the next person to be kind of a, a lay person who took a CPR class. You know, this guy can at least help. And it turns out to be your worst enemy, like the person you detest in this world the most. Something is wrong with this picture. It doesn't make sense to these people. And Jesus knew it wouldn't. Uh, starting with verse 33, Jesus kind of delves deeply into this story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went, he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. This Samaritan who walks by the wounded man has the same list of reasons not to stop as the priest and the Levite. Uh, he's not a Gentile, but he's still bound by the rules of the Old Testament. Um, so the ritualistic implications of being unclean uh, still apply to him. Uh, personal safety is also an issue with him, maybe even more so because it's possible that the robbers would have respected a priest or a Levite, but a Samaritan would have been taken advantage of. 
There are also social issues to consider. Uh, he would have had to explain to the innkeeper that he's helping this person and not the one who took advantage of him. In fact, because of certain social laws, the injured man's family could kill the Samaritan just by virtue of seeing him carry their relative into town. Uh, he had the same issues of time and money, but the one thing the Samaritan had that the priest and the Levite didn't have was a heart of compassion. The verses say that he had a deep gut-level reaction to the wounded man. Now, just for a moment, I think we need to stop and ask ourselves why. Why was it that the religious leaders of that day didn't have this, but the Samaritan did? Uh, perhaps this long history of animosity between the Samaritan people and the Jewish man's people had actually built in him a heart of compassion. Uh, being a Samaritan, he would know what it was firsthand to be an outsider and to be beaten down. In order to have the heart of compassion that he had, you know, somewhere along the line in being an outsider and being beaten down, instead of be, being cynical and angry, uh, he drew near to God. And I believe when we do that in a crisis or a difficult situation, uh, God grows a heart of compassion in us. Uh, God grows us to the point where we're willing to take risks and we're willing to put ourselves in vulnerable positions. Because in order to have mercy on people, we need to move toward them when it's not convenient, when it's risky, when we're nervous, when we're not sure of the outcome. Now, while the people who are listening to this story are still confused uh, with the idea that it's a Samaritan who's the hero, uh, that the pattern has been broken, I think for the next couple verses, Jesus rubs their noses in it very tactfully. Uh, he goes into detail to describe the acts of compassion of this Samaritan. And he helps them to understand the risks that this man took. You know, sometimes when we hear noble stories like this, we're just filled with this desire to be noble. And we forget that every, uh, every time someone does something like this, it takes a risk and it costs something. And so we don't lose sight of that. Jesus gives a list of all the things that this man did. Uh, he went to him, uh, he showed compassion, uh, he bandaged his wounds. Uh, that means he touched the bloody wounds and he bandaged them to stop the bleeding. Uh, he put his hands on this man. Uh, he poured oil and wine, which were uh, standard first aid remedies in the first century. An interesting point to note here, uh, for a Jewish person to accept oil and wine in that day from a Samaritan would have indebted him uh, to go to the temple and to pay the tithe on the oil and the wine. So now this Jewish man is in debt to this Samaritan. Uh, one of the commentators I read said, at this point in the story, if the unconscious man had risen from his coma and shook his fist and said, be gone, I will have none of your oil and wine, everyone listening would have cheered. And then it says, he put him on his donkey, uh, which meant he got off of his donkey and he put this man on it and carried him down this 17 mile descent in the hot desert. He led him to the inn. 
Uh, it's translated take in many of the Bibles, but it's more correctly understood in the Greek that he actually led the animal. Uh, and this has huge implications in the Middle East. Uh, in the Middle East, your social status determined who rode and who walked. No one of a higher social status would have walked while someone of a lesser social class rode. Uh, the Samaritan gets off of his donkey, puts this man on it, and leads him in a position of a servant down to the inn. And then he takes care of him at the inn overnight, meaning he had to change his plans and give up whatever was going on, uh, whatever he was going to do that night, in order to take care of this man. Uh, in the morning, he goes to the innkeeper, uh, gives him money to care for the man, which obligates the innkeeper to actually take care of him. Uh, two days wages is the amount that he gave. And then he promises to return and to reimburse for any additional expenses that are needed. It's like giving him his credit card or like a blank check and saying, whatever it takes to take care of this man. You have my permission and you have my money to do it. And I'll come back. And there's another aspect of this interaction that I think it's important that we're aware of. Uh, the Samaritan didn't have to know why this man was in the position he was, why he was on the side of the road in order to extend compassion to him. Um, he extended compassion regardless of what got him in the position in the first place. And here's the point I'd like to make. In compassion, the why will not change our actions. How many Christians refuse to extend mercy when they discover that the person in need has caused their own problem? Oh, you gambled your money away. You deserve to be in the situation you're in. Or you got fired from your job. You know, these are the consequences for your behavior. You cheated on your husband and, and he left you. It's your fault that you're a single mom struggling to raise three children. You got evicted from your apartment because you have a long streak of drunk driving charges. The merciful extend compassion regardless of how the person in need got in the situation. You know, I would have loved to have been there at this point in the story to see the look on the faces of those listening. Uh, because you see, Jesus didn't answer the question, who is my neighbor? In verse 36, Jesus reshapes the question posed by the expert in the law. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Uh, the expert in the law wanted a list. He wanted Jesus to tell him how many people and what kind of people he had to love in order to achieve a righteousness by his own efforts. Jesus can't give him a list because it's too narrow. So Jesus gives him this expansive answer and says, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now, Jesus is not saying do good works, but he's answering the question that the guy asked in order to justify himself. You see, compassion doesn't begin by defining its objects. Uh, compassion discovers its objects. You and I can't know in the morning who our neighbor will be throughout the day because as we live the day, God will reveal that person to us. And so what Jesus is doing is he's giving this man a dynamic concept of who his neighbor is. And he's doing the same for us today. 
we must become a neighbor to anyone who is in need. The expert in the law is asking desperately, what must I do to get in? And Jesus tells him instead what one who is on the inside looks like. The expert in the law is asking Jesus to answer the question, what works can I do? Instead, Jesus says, let me show you the fruit of a person whose heart has been touched by the mercy of God, which is how you inherit eternal life. Then let me show you what a person who has their heart changed by the heart of God does. That person grows a heart of compassion to the point where they help those who are in need, those who are wounded. Listen to Jesus' answer in verse 37. The expert in law replied, the one who had mercy on him. You know, he couldn't even get up the courage to call him the Samaritan. He couldn't even get the words out. But he knew that there was no other answer. And to question further at this point would have been to reveal his own lack of compassion. And then Jesus gives the final answer in the debate. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, let me say this as a point of application for you and me. Uh, We all know someone who needs compassion. Every one of us can identify someone who needs this kind of mercy, who needs to understand that really this is how big God's mercy is toward them. And there's one more layer underneath all of this, and that is the truth about this, this story, on an even deeper level, I believe, is that Jesus was hoping his disciples would realize something at a later time. After his death and resurrection, as they were sitting around discussing the stories Jesus taught, I think Jesus was hoping they would realize what maybe you and I have already realized about ourselves. And that's this. You and I are the wounded man on the side of the road. Jesus is the Samaritan who, at great cost, in time and money and effort and energy and in compassion, stopped by the side of the road and picked us up and took care of us with a blank check. And understanding how we fit into the story is what gives us the heart of compassion to then turn and do what Jesus says at the end of the passage. Go and do likewise. All right, would you pray with me as the band comes to lead us in a closing song? God, we're so grateful for the way that Jesus teaches these truths. And I pray that like the people in the first century who heard this story, uh, maybe left and they just kept thinking and contemplating what this story meant for them. I pray that that would happen for us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to teach us from this story how we need to reach out to those who are hurting and those who are wounded with compassion and love. God, help us to be like this Samaritan man who at great risk and sacrifice was willing to help those in need. And God, I pray that as we do, that you would lead us to places that, man, we didn't think were possible for us to go. And I pray that we would actually do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. And that would begin to ripple throughout our society and make a huge impact. And God, we just say now that we love you 
And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.